Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So um, I don't need to tell any of you this, but you know where we sit at the moment, the background of this is the COVID pandemic has been going on for the last 12 months and has focused much of our time where normally at this time of the year we might be looking at um, what significant changes there might be to the contract and to what that implications will be on us as practices in delivering services to our patients. But actually the COVID pandemic has not only dominated us over the early part of the year, then there was a bit of a lull in the summer, but clearly what um, the NHS is facing at the moment, and particularly general practice, uh, this has been the focus of everybody's attention. Um, And then when the COVID vaccination programme came along, clearly that's another major bit of work um, which has um, dominated our lives. Um, I will say at this point, I've said it numerous times before, um, the vaccinations that we've done in this country, um, we've done more than the rest of Europe put together, and largely over 75% of the vaccinations done are done in primary care by practices and PCNs collaborating together. So it is a fantastic effort to protect our population, but um, this work is um, going to go on for some weeks and months to come. Um, <clears throat> we also face an uncertain future because we don't know how long the pandemic is going to last for and the consequence of coming out of it. It won't just be a case of um, making sure that our population is vaccinated and the numbers getting infected go down. And sadly, um, you know, having reached the uh, horrible milestone yesterday of 100,000 deaths, the mortality reducing. But then as we go forward, there will be all the consequences of the other conditions, um, other medical conditions that have gone during the pandemic. So our priority to start with, or over the last uh, few weeks and months, has been saving lives. And that's the whole thrust of doing the vaccination in the cohorts that we've been asked to vaccinate. And, you know, general practice is playing a really vital role in that. Next slide, please. So the GMS contract agreement. Um, so if you look um, that where, where were we going to go in 2021 to 22, and the agreement with NHS England was there's too much uncertainty at the moment about what we need to deliver in general practice to agree um, a contract change for the whole of 2021-22. It would be farcical, in my opinion, and in others, if we were to bring a whole raft of changes in when you remain focused on delivering care to those patients who most need your time. But there are a number of pre-existing agreements that will be honoured and some new elements which will be included. Now, my intention is to go through these um, relatively slowly just to explain what we know at the moment and then we'll um, answer questions at the end. Um, Despite the fact that Andy and I sit on the GPC, so we've had a presentation about this, so we've had some details, there are still some of the details which are yet to be published. So in a way, this is a starting point to give you the context of where the contract changes will be. Next slide, please. So the general commitments that were agreed last year, and that funding is going to continue for these initiatives, which were based around recruiting and retaining GPs. So as you may remember, there was a commitment to increase the number of GP trainee numbers from 3,500 to 4,000, and that's going ahead. And we have managed to recruit, I think, to the vast majority of those posts. 
there is something called TERS, which is Target Enhancement Recruitment Scheme. And this was a scheme to recruit trainees with a financial incentive to those areas which um, had difficulty in recruiting. And the number of areas in the country that fell into the scheme has increased. Also introduced and has continued is the enhanced shared parental leave and arrangement for salaried GPs. There was also a two-year GP fellowship to be offered to all newly qualified GPs. Now we have a small number of those who have been taken up, but it's not um, everybody by any manner of means. And again, I think reflects the um, national emergency that we're in that uh, many practices have sort of bunkered down and is trying to manage the day-to-day -day stuff without taking the maximum benefit they can from some of these schemes. The new to partnership scheme was introduced for GPs and others, and a significant number of GPs and other uh, people have um, joined this scheme, um, and that continues. And that has also um, resulted in the re recruitment of more GP mentors, and also there's um, focus on retaining GPs towards the end of their career. And of course, with the pandemic, many recently retired GPs have come back, and many GPs have stayed on to help through the pandemic. So we are going to have to be careful once the pandemic's uh, over that we don't end up losing a large proportion of our workforce. Next slide, please. So to support the COVID response and the programme, you'll remember there was the expansion fund of 150 million that was announced towards the end of last year. That amounted to about 30 million pounds a month for five months ending in March, 2021. And this was aimed at um, practices expanding their workforce um, for GPs, but also other workforce that you would need to help you over the winter. And there were seven criteria that this was aligned against. Um, the first one was the COVID vaccination programme, but there was also the COVID oximetry at home, the monitoring of people for silent hypoxia. But also there were a number of other things, including continuing with um, managing the people with learning disabilities, looking at health inequalities uh, and a number of things which should give uh, financial uh, incentives to individual practices to help them over these difficult months. Also recently, the primary care networks, clinical directors have all spend a, spent a lot of time um, coordinating, helping, working with their local practices, um, not, not only with the COVID vaccination programme, but with the oximetry at home and a number of other things, the hot sites, for example. So it's been agreed that for the first three months, um, each PCN will be funded one whole time equivalent uh, for a PCN CD, so long as they're participating in the vaccination programme. And also it's been agreed that the COVID fund will remain under review, which seems to me quite a vague statement, which we've asked for clarification of. But I think this is looking at the um, additional expenses that are incurred by local systems due to COVID, which would then be reimbursed. Next slide, please. So quaff. Um, there is a need for stability. So um, each year there is a discussion about bringing in new indicators, retiring old ones, and then NICE gets involved in it. And many um, areas will uh, specialists, so you know, cardiovascular diabetes will throw into the mix their suggestion about how things should be developed. But there is minimal change for next year, and I'll, I'll give you a few details in a minute. 
there is increased investment in the vaccination and immunization. Um, and I think, uh, if I remember rightly, that's about, there's about 24 million extra going into the quad for that. The DES for vaccination immunization started last year, but is being replaced by item of service is. So there are four indicators that have been agreed and added to QOF, and £60 million has been uh, transferred from the DES into the QOF, and I'll talk about that later. Um, that the, the whole thrust of this was no new work and clearer support for the delivery of care. Next slide, please. So if you look at the vaccinations and immunizations part of QOF, this was looking through, um, and we'll make these slides available, so you don't need to busily write them down. They have been made uh, available in the letter, but you can then see what you're being asked to do, particularly looking at um, the people, that the, the children at eight months with their vaccinations, and then the 18 months with their MMR going on to the five-year-olds, and then picking up the people with shingles. Um, next slide, please. The QI modules uh, for this year were about early diagnosis of cancer and learning disabilities. And many people during the summer started work on that and that's largely stopped because of the surge in people uh, with COVID. So what's been agreed is that those two um, QI modules won't be replaced as they were expected to, they will be repeated in their original format next year with some slight modifications to account for the impact of the pandemic upon the care that you're delivering. So there's still two really important areas, the learning disabilities, because we know that this group has um, worse outcomes with COVID and we know that their lives are, are shortened um, if they are in particular groups with learning disabilities. So there is still a keenness to look at um, the vaccination of flu, COVID, doing the health checks, even if they're done remotely, and the medication reviews on these people. And the early diagnosis of cancer, you know, we know that the 10-year plan is looking at um, saving 55,000 lives a year and getting people, catching people in stage one or two in 75% of cases. So whatever you've done this year will not be wasted, but these will be just carried forward into next year. Next slide, please. So health inequalities. Now, this is a topic of conversation in many areas where COVID pandemic has an impact. And we know uh, you only had to watch, I think the BBC News last yeah. night, where it made it quite clear that if you lived in a very deprived area and they looked at um, a place just outside Blackpool, when the mortality rate is two and a half times more affluent area, just because these people were living in areas of deprivation. We also know that people with serious mental illness have a life expectancy of between 15 and 20 years less than those in the general population. So £24 million has been added to QOF to strengthen the SMI physical health checks indicator um, to set up and support um, these particularly vulnerable patients. There have also been some minor changes to the cancer care domain and also um, the specific um, indicators with asthma and heart failure diagnosis have been amended slightly. Next slide, please. So if you look at the SMI, 
what they're particularly keen on looking at is um, if you look at those people with schizophrenia, bipolar, and other psychosis, um, looking at alcohol consumption and alcohol and serious mental illness does have a correlation both in terms of um, coexistence um, of high alcohol com com consumption, but also um, making for worse outcomes. Also, people with serious mental illness um, have uh, been found to be more likely to have cardiovascular disease. And this may be partly because they're more likely to eat a poorer diet, uh, more likely to smoke, uh, and more likely to do less exercise and other things which make them uh, more at risk of it. So one of the indicators in here is to do a lipid profile um, to look at their cardiovascular risk, and particularly looking at things like smoking and obesity. And the final bit is that, again, the incidence of diabetes in this group is higher than the average in the community. So they're looking at a blood glucose or hemoglobin A1C to pick up prediabetes or pick up diabetes in this particularly vulnerable group. Next slide, please. So in the cancer domain, the new one is looking at people who are diagnosed with cancer in the last 12 months who've had the opportunity for a discussion and informed support within three months of diagnosis. And there was a discussion about this, about um, you know, if somebody's in uh, under hospital care, is there any point in making contact with them? And the general feedback from Macmillan, I think in Cancer Care UK and others, is that patients do value that contact with their practice and particularly their general practitioner, even if it isn't about managing their ongoing care, but just having that point of contact is often of value. And then the second um, bit of the indicator is about um, patients um, having a review using a structured template within 12 months of diagnosis. Next slide, please. So the PCN DES remains. Um, you will know that there was recently a ballot about whether the GPCs should continue, continue to negotiate about the PCN DES and that was passed with a, an overwhelming majority uh, of people uh, voting, even though the turnout was low. So the PCN DES. So for this year, the maximum value of the additional roles reimbursement scheme is 430 million. We're still not using um, the capacity in that funding. And we recognize that if you take people on early, um, and you're limited to the groups you can take on, it means that when you move into the next year, you may not have sufficient money to employ all the people you want to do. But some PCNs have been using that to, using the ARRS budget to increase the hours that their current staff work to help them uh, with uh, stuff to do with the COVID vaccination and managing their patients. Now, part of the five-year deal was that this, um, if you remember, the ARRS was to employ 26,000 more people by 23-24. And by 23-24, the amount would be about 1.46 million by, uh, billion, sorry, by recollection. So for next year, the sum available for reimbursement goes up to 746 million. Now there were four new service specifications which were due to be introduced, and they were anticipatory care, personalised care, cardiovascular disease prevention and diagnosis, and tackling uh, neighbourhood inequalities. 
And what's been agreed is that the introduction of those will be delayed and they will not start on at the beginning of April. Um, and one line I picked out of the letter which NHS England sent out was, PCNs are a platform for general practice investment. So when we're looking at the resources we have available to our practice, I know uh, many practices would prefer to have the ARRS money directly into their practice um, global sum and use it more freely, but it is clear nationally that that is not the case, that this investment uh, will come through the reimbursement scheme and therefore you know, we would encourage the primary care networks and their constituent practices to be working together to make maximum use of this funding. Next slide, please. So um, the funding has been extended, as I said, it doesn't really affect us, but just so that you're aware, um, in London, they've been uh, raising the issue about London waiting and that they can't recruit people because the levels of reimbursement aren't sufficient. So they have introduced uh, the ability for people in the London waiting area to use London waiting, but their overall ring fence budget doesn't change. So if you see anything on social media, which I've already seen, to say that London is getting uh, more money, which means less in the other parts of the country, that isn't true. It's the same everywhere, just that the London practices or those who have London waiting can use that. Um, but from April, there are three new roles which come under the ARRS. So there are paramedics, and this was planned, and then there will be the advanced practitioners, which I'll describe in a minute, and then the mental health practitioners. Next slide, please. So there's been a lot of interest in the mental health practitioners, and this is a new model. So what has been agreed is there will be joint funding between um, bringing together the additional funding that's gonna go into community mental health as part of the national transformation of community mental health and PCN funding. So the idea is that each PCN would be entitled to one full-time equivalent or whole-time equivalent mental health practitioner who would be provided by the local mental health provider. That the funding would be 50% by the mental health provider and 50% would come from the ARRS. And although they would be employed by the local mental health provider, which may then help with some of the training and supervision, they will be wholly deployed in the PCN. And then the numbers will increase in the following year to two whole crime equivalent, or in the following year, so 2023 for three whole time equivalents. But if you're a large PCN with over 100,000, then you will get double those numbers. And the additionality rule applies. So if you have a mental health practitioner working in your practice, what, the, what they can't do is say, right, you've got this mental health practitioner, so we won't fund the other one. It's got to be additionality. And what also is our concern um, is that we need to watch that what this doesn't happen is that we put money into the through the IRS to this position, and all they do is end up picking up the community or secondary care um, mental health. This is to support general practice and support the mental health uh, that you deliver, uh, not to plug a gap of unmet need in the secondary or community care, the wider set. So, you know, that's something that we will obviously be involved in and, and do have a concern about. 
There will also be a new obligation on mental health providers, which will be confirmed in the new standard contract for the NHS to provide these people. There is also another concern that um, many of the local mental health providers are running with quite significant vacancies because they are struggling to recruit. So if we're going to look at uh, across Wessex, that's 82 primary care networks. So that's 82 new mental health practitioners that we might wish to have. Um, we're not certain there are 82 people sitting out there waiting for this role to come up, although more people are in training, um, but that's something we'll have to work through. Next slide, please. And just to be clear, um, early on, we thought these were going to be mental health workers and therefore not clinical professionals. But again, it's been clarified that these are registered clinical roles and they're operating at a band for change uh, level five. So, sorry, agenda for change. Now, I know general practice doesn't do agenda for change, but if you look in any of the guidance, the agenda for change is used by these professional groups and it gives you an idea of where those salary scales would be. So this, result, this role could be a CPN, a psychologist or a mental health occupational therapist. And it also goes on to define that they can provide a combination of consultation, advice, triage, they can liaise with the mental health service and the point of them being um, provided by the mental health services, they should be supported by your local mental health provider. And the expectation is they'll work with patients, you know, looking at things like shared decision-making, self-management, um, onward referral to treatment services so that they don't get that situation where everybody gets referred back to the GP to refer. And they could carry out the brief psychological interventions and they operate within your team so you don't have to refer back to the GP and they can take direct booking. So that needs a level of skill and experience and competency which allows all those things to do. And there should be robust clinical governance structures to maintain quality and safety um, and that's where the supervision also comes in. Next slide, please. So within the existing roles, then um, from April this year to September, um, there is another opportunity for clinical pharmacists uh, that remain on uh, the general practice scheme to transfer into the PCN, the PCN scheme under the ARRS, as the, there were some practices who had more than one pharmacist and couldn't transfer them in. The limits on the number of pharmacy technicians and physiotherapists which can be reversed, can be reimbursed, has also been removed. So whereas before you could only have one of each, you now there isn't a limit if you could recruit those people, um, uh, although the numbers are still in short supply. Next slide, please. The advanced practitioner. Now, this is a new role. So it's indicative at the Agenda for Change Band 8. So for that, they must hold a master's degree. They must be able to work independently with a defined level of expertise. And they have described this could apply to a clinical pharmacist, a physiotherapist or occupational therapist, a dietitian, podiatrist or a paramedic. So the scheme here is to get those people who can take workload off GPs and therefore work independently. Um, any practice nurses or practice managers or actually GPs for that matter will notice that um, we do have adverse, advanced practitioners who are nurses. There is still um, a reluctance to put nurses into these groups simply because it's seen that they are 
essential to the delivery of general practice as GPs are. Um, and what they don't want is to replace um, practice nurses um, in, in this group. They want to take on additional people. And there's been an ongoing discussion and argument about that, which I completely understand and support. Um, again, if you look at this, it's one whole time equivalent person per 100,000. But if you're a large PCM, then it goes up to two whole time equivalents per 100,000. Next slide, please. The other agreements. Um, so NHS England and the GPC have agreed to review and change the terms of condition of practice staff as set out in the GP contract agreement. Now, this bit is, uh, was written in the letter, and I'll come to Andy Perbrick, who was at the same meeting as I was later, because I'm not quite sure um, if we look at our practice staff, the terms and conditions are defined by individuals, uh, practices, if this means that there are some benefits um, which might relate to things um, like sick pay and other things which might be advantageous to us, then um, I'm open to listening to what has been said, but I'm unclear as to exactly what that might mean. Um, under the data collection survey and general practice, they do want an accurate baseline of current terms and conditions to help develop that um, discussion. And again, I'm anticipating that the GPC will work with the uh, NHS England to work out quite how they get that baseline data. Recognising how busy practices are and how much there is a demand on particularly practice managers' time to supply the data, and we want this to be um, not particularly onerous. But again, as with the information about how um, the workload is in general practice and the resilience of practice in terms of people off sick, unless we can get some of this data, it's quite hard to negotiate both locally and regionally and nationally to the benefit of general practice. There is also a commitment to explore the gender pay gap um, and information will be made more transparent so that individuals can look at this um, and that uh, an agreement can be implemented during the year if that's appropriate. Next slide, please. Also, there's some um, confirmation about the digital offer and the letter that came out in the contract agreement confirms that practices must offer online consultations, two-way secure written communication between patient carers and practices, video consultations, online prescriptions, online booking, and shared record access, including patients being able to add to their record. So immediately two or three things come out to me there. One is the online consultations, which practices, uh, some will find really helpful and really useful as a way of managing their workload. But we also know that there are a number of practices who are finding it increasingly difficult when they come in on a Monday morning to 50 um, e-consults, for example, trying to get through that on the busiest day of the week. So there are national discussions going on about how that can be better managed. And there are discussions going on locally with your CCGs about uh, the ability to turn that off in the active hours periods or at times um, that suit you. Uh, but again, coming back to that, there is a uh, part of the contract is that you do need to offer uh, a form of online consultations. The other bit about um, shared record access, that's what practices do now. So you would see that's no particular change. The bit that may cause some concern is patients being able to add 
information to their record. On one level, that could be really positive and be very helpful. The second is, what does that mean in terms of the integrity of the record and how will that be managed? And there are areas that are doing this and there are uh, my health records in hospitals where they are allowed to add information in a patient space and we'll get more information as time goes on about that. Next slide, please. Um, other items, um, practices who operate the total triage or triage first model don't have to meet the 25% online booking uh, contract requirements. That's been made clear. Um, practices will provide the functionality for patients to use an online method to inform their practice of change of address, contact details, demographic in information, including ethnicity. And again, I think we need a bit more clarity about that. Um, and as was announced uh, last year, cervical screening uh, has, as an additional service has now become an essential service. And there's been a removal of the requirement for the patient consent in the use of the uh, repeat dispensing, uh, which was removed under the pandemic regulations. It's now become a permanent change. Next slide, please. Um, there is going to be a contractual requirement for the more timely transfer of records when patients move between practices. Um, there is, as you may well know, there is an ongoing project to digitalise all the records. So new babies aren't getting any um, Lloyd George notes. And ultimately, over a three-year period, the intention is to digitalise all primary care records. This is causing a bit of a problem because still when you transfer the records, there is only a uh, capacity amount of size of file that can be transferred and that needs to be addressed and has been pointed out to NHS England that if we're going to transfer records in a timely manner um, and we're going to do more and more digital and less and less paper transfers then it does need to be um, sorted out. Um, and again on the next bit the, the digital services, um, the, change, the changes will clarify that digital services are allowed to be delivered by contractors through locations other than their practices in line with what's happening currently. Um, minor updates will be made to the existing structured medication review and the early diagnosis of cancer as the service specifications within this year, which are part of the DARES. Uh, but the details of that will be negotiated later when it's clearer what is going on. Next slide, please. So uh, before I go on, I'm going to hand over to Andy just to add some bit about obesity and weight management part of the contract and actually ask him if there are any other items I've missed out which he would like to add. And then Michelle's going to add a, another bit. Andy? Yeah, thanks, Nigel. Uh, as you said, I mean, this was all presented to us in a couple of hours of fairly intense um, presentation, um, uh, and it's all come very quickly. I think we need a lot more detail around the areas that you've highlighted, and as, as ever, the, the devil will be in the detail. I think just touching on a couple of things, there was still an emphasis that in terms of QOF, the bits that we are still delivering, it's perfectly acceptable to be doing those remotely while there's still a pandemic going on. As you mentioned, there is a plan for additional funding for a new uh, DES around obesity and weight management. Most of you know that Boris sees this as an essential, um, essential sort of political agenda, given the disproportionate number of people with obesity uh, having adverse outcomes with COVID. So sometime later in the year, there's likely to be a DES to encourage us to refer patients to weight management services 
providing that those weight management services actually exist locally. Um, in terms of the um, in terms of the investment and innovation funding, that increased to 150 million each this year. And as Nigel said, they're not introducing new indicators above and beyond a commitment that at least 30 million of that funding will be to incentivize improvements in access for patients. Now, there's no real detail on what that means. Um, if, if, if you remember, the access funding review was due to be published this year with movement of access funding to the PCNs to provide enhanced access, but that has actually been delayed until 2022 now. So I'm not clear what this um, incentivization to improve access for patients will mean for us. What they did say at the GPC was that over the summer of 21, um, we'll, we'll be mandated to look at um, developing access schemes with the, with the view of implementing these in April 2022. So that's probably something that we'll need to look out for. Um, you mentioned, Nigel, about the, the agreement to look at staff contracts and uh, I'm afraid that passed me by. And again, we've not had any detail of that, so I'm not really clear what that means, to be honest with you. Okay, thanks, Andy. Um, Michelle? Hi, yes, I'm just going to talk a bit about the COVID vaccination programme and the urgent message that's come out today. So NHS England, um, back on the 15th of January, released some information and a protocol for PCN groupings to claim their item of service and the supplementary payment um, for the COVID vaccination programme. And on the NHS Futures platform, there's an urgent message gone out um, asking uh, PCNs to review this document. So the two areas that they're asking you to review, the first um, is around making sure that you've got two nominated um, members of staff within the PCN grouping that has the responsibility to go on and validate the claims for items of service and the supplementary payments. This is within your manage your service platform. The deadline was the 22nd of January, but it would appear that there are some PCN groupings, maybe not in our area, but somewhere haven't done this. So it's an immediate action for you to undertake if you haven't done so, as you won't receive your payments in February for December and January vaccinations. The other action that needs to be taken is that on the 2nd of January in Pinnacle, the care home field was released and entered and they're asking PCN groupings to go in for the vaccinations that have been done in care homes and make sure that that field has been populated. They have um, identified some funding as you may need to bring in additional staff. So there's £950 per week with a maximum of £2,500 per PCN that can be claimed for, for this piece of work. But it was just to highlight there's two urgent actions that need to be taken to ensure you get your payments for COVID vaccinations and to encourage you to look at that document on the NHS futures platform and, and just to say we've deliberately focused today on the contract changes um, and we'll go to the questions in a minute but if you do have questions about covid vaccination then uh, we will try and answer those as well so gareth do you want to start off with a q a yes thanks nigel um, so we'll just go through them. We've got 10 questions at the moment, which shouldn't take too long. So the first one is, why is the supply so slow in coming into the PCNs? I'm assuming that's vaccine supply. Um, well, I can, I can answer that. Um, if you look at this week, the number of um, 
doses coming in has increased and it will increase even more next week. Um, the expectation is that we are going to move to more AstraZeneca and less Pfizer. Um, and certainly next week, there looks like more AstraZeneca around than there is Pfizer. Um, but as soon as the deliveries are made nationally, they're then distributed uh, across the country. They're not storing any nationally. The, um, the ones who get more vaccine are generally the areas that have got more people to vaccinate. But we absolutely recognise, um, Gareth and I have been on numerous calls a week um, about supply and really pushing hard to say practices need more notice and practices need to be able to control the delivery. I don't think, well, that, you know, that there is a capacity issue to deliver, um, but, you know, practices have done an amazing job uh, across the patch in, um, you know, the coverage of their populations and are working really hard with, you know, the expectation of delivering uh, those uh, by the 15th of February, the cohorts one to four, we think we'll achieve. Um, so it's an amazing job, but the limitation has been the supply, which is a bit variable. And then the other bit, which, you know, is just unacceptable, but out of our control locally is when you suddenly get told you're going to get Pfizer delivered on a Friday with about a day's notice. Um, and then you've got to work all weekend to try and make sure you don't waste any vaccine. So, um, you know, if, if that's the question, we absolutely recognise we want to move to a pool model so you can say, we will deliver this number over this timescale and order the vaccine um, in relation to that. So hopefully that yeah. answers your question. The only other thing I'd add to that, Nigel, is I don't think from the calls I've been on, there's, I've had any indication that other parts of the system are being prioritised over PCNs. So, you know, very, very much, I think the supply, the supply chain and the availability of these vaccines is challenging for everybody in the system, not just the PCN model, and they are targeting the distribution to hit the, hit the national imperatives of, of meeting the target by the middle of February. So uh, uh, it is causing a lot of logistical problems, and I absolutely understand that. Uh, but a lot of this is actually outside of control of certainly the CCGs, um, and it's, it's based on the NHS England targets. And Graham Tyler with Gareth, 75% of the vaccine is going to primary care networks. Um, they're not diverting vaccine into the mass vaccination centres or the hospitals. Uh, they are getting a share of it. Um, and before anyone raises the question, um, I've been on three calls in the last 24 hours um, pushing about the mass booking, uh, you know, the national booking system, which is then disadvantaging practices who are finding that they're getting increasing number of DNAs or people who they're phoning who say, no, I've already got an appointment, which is causing significant problems. So we've pushed back really hard in both the southeast and the southwest region about that. And I was on a national call yesterday where I brought it up as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, let's go on to the next question. So registered as a mentor on the fellowship scheme locally, but heard nothing. I guess follow it up, follow it up is the, me is the message really. Go back to them and chase them. I don't know whether um, you, you've got any more information on there being problems with that, Nigel. No, I think the uh, I think with the expectation was quite a few newly qualified GPs would want to join the mentor scheme. I uh, joined the um, GP fellowship scheme, but because of COVID, then um, some of them have not taken up, and practices have felt they're not in a position to implement it. So there are um, we're, we're going to have a look at the figures next week in the LMC that we've asked each of the areas to report back to us about how many GP fellows have been appointed and, and what the current situation is. Yeah, okay. 
Thank you. So the next one is about from uh, Gareth Robinson. Has any news of Hampshire County Council paying guaranteeing for the health checks contraception contract that we have effectively been told to stop as per the escalation plan as they did in the first half of the COVID crisis? Well, we've engaged with them, Gareth, and I've just checked my emails and there was an email exchange with um, with Portsmouth City Council, who is representing all the Hampshire councils. Um, just before Christmas, and they promised us a reply by mid-January 2021 on this. I haven't seen anything about that yet. Um, I don't know whether, Nigel, you have. No, but I, I think you, you successfully managed to negotiate in in parts of Wiltshire that, to secure it, but we got, I think, both in Dorset and in Hampshire, if I'm right, Andy, I think we got pushed back to say, the local authorities were under financial pressure. And although there was sympathy in the public health department, their finance departments were pushing back quite hard. Mm. Yes, yeah, certainly in Dorset, they, there, was, there was national legal advice sought on this. And as it was um, paid on a um, pay per item of service payment, they felt that they didn't have to guarantee income. We obviously pushed back very hard and said, well, that's not really in in keeping with the ethos of the government's suggestion that they should be protecting practices, but they weren't budging on that. Interestingly, Dorset just communicated with us about how they should approach practices with a view to restarting health checks. Uh, and I've fairly forcefully gone back to them to say it's going to be very low on the um, priority list, given that the income's not protected. Uh, and we've got other priorities that have been protected. So. Okay. I just had an email from Laura Edwards, who's our medical director, who's been working on this with um, Claire Siever. And she unfortunately just come back to say Hampshire County Council have said no. And we have asked them to communicate this with practices. So I suspect there'll be an email out soon. And, you know, I think my advice to you would be to go back to them and continue to contest it and put the pressure on them. Okay, the next one, uh, existing cancer review indicator with structured template. Is this covered by the reviews patients have in secondary care? No. Would you like to add anything else, Andy? <laughs> the, I mean, uh, the, the ethos of this is that you have a um, communication with your patient to offer them support and, and remind them of the services that are available from the practice in terms of managing their cancer. So... That's the um, idea behind this. Um, like you, you know, I've often looked at the hospital letters and thought, well, they've pretty much covered everything I'm going to um, cover. And when you speak to these patients, they've got immense support from the hospital. But unfortunately, you know, there's a three-month review and a 12-month review, I think. And the 12-month yeah. review is going to be use, using a structured template. Yeah, that's my understanding too. Okay, the next one. Is there any sign of any addition to the ARRS scheme for non-clinical management? Not that I'm aware of. No, but, and the but is we've raised it repeatedly about having additional resource to, particularly as the numbers of clinical staff increase or the number of ARRS staff, the burden on practice managers and on the PCNs is increased. And the pound fifty. Um, can't be used um, umpteen million ways. So it's something that, that there's still pressure on, but it, doesn't, it, it isn't included in the ARS. Okay, thank you. Um, so next one relating to the, to the new mental health roles. Isn't this going to decommission and threaten the manning of the IAP service and, the, and CMHT? No, they're not allowed to do that. So it's very clear the reasoning behind having a joint contract and employment from the... Uh, existing mental health trust was actually to 
um, avoid us removing all of those practitioners from the mental health trust and effectively taking over provision of that service. So by having them jointly employed, the, the hope is that these practitioners will then be additional rather than replacing ex existing practitioners um, uh, with the mental health services. We already know that a lot of the services have got vacancies that aren't filled and then we don't get a service. So that's the reason behind it. And I can't see it affecting I IAPT either. Yeah. And then a follow-up question really. Um, so why have they made the funding model so complex? Shouldn't the funding go to the PCN as they will be wholly deployed by them? I think as I described, um, I think the intention was to try and um, secure in support and also some collaborative working. But I, I recognise it looks quite complicated. I know in Hampshire they're going to set up a group with the LMC, the mental health providers and PCNs to try and work through this. I suspect that will happen in the other areas as well to try and make it work as best as we can. Mm. Mm. Okay, next one's practical question. Um, hi, for 2021, can we complete the LD health checks remotely and claim the fee? Yes. Yeah, provided you feel you've completed the check satisfactorily. Yeah, you've done everything you can and you've done yeah. it remotely. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Okay, so again, with COF payments, what is protected? Is it the absolute amount of money, the number of points or the percentage of points you achieved historically? So that is a very good question, Caroline, and one that we've asked because um, we know that COF is protected up until March. What we don't know is what's going to happen beyond. So that is a question we're asking. So it does say in the letter um, a bit about COF and the points his looking historically, but we want more detail to be able to, sure, to be sure quite what that means. Mm. Okay. Uh, can practices employ their own mental health practitioners? If already in post, can they be funded via the ARRS scheme? Well, I guess not because of additionality. Yeah. That these posts have to be additional to existing staff to attract the funding. So as frustrating as that is, I think that's the answer to that in much the same way as the pharmacy uh, posts, et cetera, were, were, were the same in the first wave of employment. Okay, so next question. We gave two names for the vaccination validation process, but as yet have not received logins. Who do I chase? Um, I'm not sure which area this is. Ben? I think that's Kerry. So, um, and she put a next, another comment to say it was Kerry. So your understanding is the same as ours. Um, the document says that they will be issuing these this week. Um, we can find out um who you need to chase just to make sure that you've got you submit you submitted them but uh, it's the same understanding they're issuing them this week okay brilliant thanks michelle um and the next one one of my partners registered with a new to partnership scheme in october and still not heard anything are there problems delays with payments yeah i think there are a number of people like that where i think um, nhs england um have moved a lot of their staff onto the covid vaccination program and i think that's something we can we can raise nationally Okay. Um, and next one from Alex. Uh, vaccination of housebound is more time consuming than care homes. We have additional payments for homes, so why not for housebound patients, which would help cover additional costs? Is GPC looking at this? Um, the answer is yes. It, it has been brought up several times, and the, uh, Alex's point is absolutely correct. Um, that's what has been raised, but the you know, you, you could argue about 
the super enhancement they gave over that short time period, maybe they could have put that into the vaccination, the house ban, but that wasn't uh, wasn't our decision. And the I think the pushback from NHS England has not been to put any more money into the house ban. Mm. My understanding is that there's a contractual requirement for the community providers to assist in the provision for these um, individuals, though, isn't there? Yeah. Despite the fact that most of the community providers say they haven't got the capacity for it. So yeah. it's about working with the CCGs to see how that, that's going to be facilitated. Yeah, and certainly um, uh, I'm, I've been involved in, in lots of meetings recently about how we can develop a system up in BSW to, to facilitate the delivery to housebounds, but they're not, they're certainly they're not going to be able to provide the whole service. Um, and I think it's exposed, exposed the problems in community teams. Okay. Uh, we negotiated in Hampshire too that, that one of the community providers would do it. And I think they are working with the PCNs, but I, I like you, Gareth, I just think it exposes their lack of capacity to be able to deliver it. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, next question from Liz. Um, as a large PCN, but not greater than 100,000 population, the CAPS limits on the ARRS staff are an issue. Yeah, we'd agree with you. Agree entirely, yeah. Yeah, it's a flaw in the model, really. Yeah. Um, and can the CCG use their discretion to allow another member of staff, e.g. mental health worker? No. The ARS, if this is the question, the ARRS is defined nationally and you can't go outside the groups yeah. that they defined. Yeah. yeah, I'm assuming that's, that's in connection with the previous question from Liz. So I think that does relate to the ARRS. Okay. Uh, the next one, we've had lots of patients who have been given the COVID vaccine at a hospital setting, but the information has not been updated in the patient records. This is a problem with some of the older population. Yeah, the hospital use a system called NIBS or NIMS, and practices have reported that. There was also a problem with Pinnacle going into practice systems last week, uh, but that has been corrected. So that information should be coming through. Um, if you check that over the next week and it still isn't happening, if you could let Gareth and I know, we'll escalate it up through the various chains. Yeah. Um, I recognise Pinnacle's causes a problem and they've added a couple of questions to it, which is now taking longer that they've asked for ethnicity and there's one other question. We're still pushing for and hoping that in the not too distant future, you'll be able to use your clinical system to record the immunisations. Mm. Mm. I think just a general comment really that we seem to be hitting a difficult point in the vaccination programme at the moment where we have supply issues and also the large vaccination centres coming more and more on stream, the NHS England sending out letters to patients which is causing confusion with patients booking into different slots. We've, we've had reports of increased DNAs in both PCN um, vaccine clinics and hospital vaccine clinics um, and so I think there's a bit of instability at the moment which we we are completely aware of and we are doing our best to to try to influence the system as much as we can um, so I, I absolutely get that it's it's it suddenly feels a bit more difficult this week so next one from Philip Philip Mays in Swindon. The cancer follows the follow-up within three months will be difficult for acute leukemia and similar complex patients as patient inpatient at 12 weeks. Yes, but you can always exception code them if you need to. Yeah. 
Um, so Lucy, um, read the Cancer Care Reviews. There is an education event for those in BSW this Thursday evening, which may be helpful. Email invites have been sent out to all practices. So thank you, Lucy. Um, anonymous attendee, our CCG is still saying we need permission to move AZ to our own surgeries, even though this would improve capacity. Can the CCG do this if this is a nationally agreed service? Nigel, do you want to start with that? And then I'll, I'll come start. On. I'll start and Gareth can follow on. So um, there has been some new guidance released this week. There is, um, there are a number of caveats to this. So you can move the AZ vaccine in what they describe as exceptional circumstances. So this is to aid the delivery, to increase the capacity, to reach hard to reach groups. At the moment, what they don't want is uh, the vaccine to come into a central point and then just be distributed in anywhere and everywhere. And the reason for that is they want to preserve the integrity of the vaccination centre that you've got in your PCM to continue the capacity. If we get suddenly get more Pfizer rather than AZ and you can't distribute it, that you've lost the workforce and the ability to run from the centre. The PCN clinical director remains accountable and responsible for that delivery wherever it goes. So you've got to maintain the cold chain. You need to have a site where it's going to be delivered from that's suitable. So if you want to move the vaccine, you can under certain circumstances, but you need to agree, agree that with your PCN. So it's not that your PCN is going against the national agreement. It's that your PCN is abiding by the rules that they've been given. Now, if we need to increase the capacity and do more than we have in these sites, then this might become increasingly possible to distribute it to practices as well. But you can see what the logistics are at the moment. They aren't reliable even delivering to the thousand primary care sites that there are at the moment, let alone to 7,000 practice sites. So, um, you know, that's, that's the reason. I hope that, that clarifies it. Gareth, do you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with everything that you say. I think, I think reading the letters that I've read and the recent, um, the recent updated guidance, it's quite clear that the expectation of this service is to deliver it at the PCN sites. But there is an allowance to move, the, to move it. Unfortunately, um, because of the vaccine supply issues, because it's quite, it's very unpredictable as to what you might get. We can't stand down the PCN sites, and I know it's frustrating because people would like to get on and vaccinate their own patients. But actually, you, we have to view this as a system issue, not an individual practice issue. However, there are exceptions around hard-to-reach groups, um, the housebound, homeless, um, certain uh, other other groups that that will be best done in practice sites and I get that and, and the rurality bit is important for some areas but of course there's no definition of what's extreme rurality um, that you know if you live in a, in a town it still might take you an hour to get to a vaccination site that's that's three miles away with the traffic and you might take you and yet you could be 20 miles away from it in the in a rural setting so what do you base what do you base difficulties in getting to a site on um, the most important thing is that we're meeting the trajectories and, and, and really there's, there's not a lot of evidence that we're not hitting the trajectories with the current model. So to disturb that model is a risk. And I think we all need to be mindful that we're trying to save lives here and it, we don't want to take unnecessary risks or, or disturb what, what we're currently doing unless there's a very good reason to do that. And we think we'll have an appreciable gain that's fair and equitable across the whole population. 
not just individual practice populations. Okay, I um, don't know the answer to this one. We accidentally recorded one of the care homes as receiving Pfizer. I've been back and updated to AZ, but system one hasn't been updated to reflect this. When will this happen? It may not do because um, Pinnacle communicates with your practice system, but it can't amend your practice system. So it can put information in. I think you need to raise it with your um, IT people and your COVID vaccination program lead. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And then the next one, how are mass back sites able to book patients in for 10 weeks time when PCN sites don't know when their deliveries are, so are unable to do this? Uh, that's the national booking system, I guess, isn't it? So um, practices can book people in, in the 12th week. If you start booking them before then, you can't guarantee your supply. We are told that they have reserved the supply. So the people you've done with Pfizer or AstraZeneca, the advantage of the mass vaccination sites and the pharmacists have got is they're using AstraZeneca. So they're not going to get this three and a half day window that general practice is doing. Um, so again, um, Gareth and I have been on numerous calls. I've been on two so far this morning. Um, and this matter has been raised in both of them. That the pharmacies are also offering a second appointment. Now, some practices are doing it. I know um, the vaccination practice I've been working in, they, they are booking a second one, um, but they, there is a risk to that. So, you know, practices can um, look to do that in 12 weeks after or in the 12th week after they do it. Um, but again, the whole bit about the national booking and the letters has been raised and, and said that this is causing potential inefficiency. I know Gav referred to one site where I think they had 26 cancellation or 26 DNA, sorry, and to try and find 26 additional people at the end of the day to vaccinate is not, you know, even if you've got your emergency list, is not easy. So it's efficiency, but also wasted. So we would uh, agree with you, but PCNs need to make their own decisions about whether they're going to offer the second appointment now or wait till nearer the time. Mm. Got a couple of questions on the same thing about moving AZ to, from our central PCN site to our own practice. CCJ, we, CCG say we need prior permission from them. And then the same question, does the PCN need CCG approval if they want to move it to another site to deliver the vaccine or can we just document business rationale? Um, according to the letters currently, they need to get permission from the CCG. That's my understanding. Is that yours, Gareth? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is happening though. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the bit about how does it different to transport to care home and vaccinate to compete to completing in our own surgery? Well, technically, it isn't any different, of course, but it's about the, about the quantities being moved and the need to move it, in my view. Yeah. And then it comes down to this having the capacity in your um, the, the primary site. I mean, it sounds like we're being really defensive. All we're doing is explaining what the national position is. Mm. Yeah, and then the last one, no intention to stand down PCN site. Yeah, but capacity is still limited due to social distancing. Yeah, well, again, that's that's you. I think you can make an argument on the basis of, of access and hitting the hitting the, the the mandated targets. So if the PCN site can't deliver that, then the PCN needs to consider other other ways of hitting the target. Um, and if that is uh, using it at practices, then then that's a good argument to move the AZ vaccine to practices to hit the access targets. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there's still some more coming in. Um, bringing 
it's two o'clock now so do you want to do the last couple and then we'll stop yeah so bringing the vaccines back into practice will totally wipe out, wipe out our remaining staff. I feel more comfortable holding the clinics at the vaccination sites where staff volunteer to work. Yeah. Okay. And I think, um, I mean, that's the, that's the counter argument. So you can see what some practices are pushing for it to come out to, out to, out to practice at practice level. And here's an argument to maintain the integrity of the, of the PCN site. Um, and CV not keen to attend a big site where there are more people now vaccinating cohort four. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, anecdotally, I had lots of reports from MPs and others who are really impressed with the efficient nature of the PCN site and how people have got through and how slick that is. Um, some of the mass vaccination sites have problems. I know my father-in-law's in Surrey and waited two hours in the mass vaccination centre to be done. Um, so I, I can see why people who are clinically extremely vulnerable would want to go to their practice or their locality um, and not do not go elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the other the final point I would just make on the vaccine program is, you know, this is the situation now. It might be very different in a week's time. It certainly will be different in two or three weeks' time. So. Um, you know, it's it's a question of making sure that we're that we're maintaining the, the trajectories and and keeping the workforce, you know, in a in a place where they can deliver that. Um, the workforce issues, I think, um, I'm told that um, a lot of the of the additionally recruited workforce will be coming more available very soon, and that might make a big difference. And again, is another reason to maintain the PCN sites, in my view, when that workforce becomes available, because we've got to remember business as usual in general practice. I just echo that, Gareth, to say that, you know, this is going to be a long term program, vaccination and immunisation. At some stage, we're going to have to catch up with all the business as usual that we're doing. And actually, a model that relies less on us and more on a remote uh, service with non-practice staff is more sustainable in the longer term, I would say. Yeah. Okay. That's all the questions then, Nigel. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks everybody for attending. As usual, this has been recorded and we'll make it into an audio podcast and um, also make the slides available so that uh, people can go back and have a look at it. Thank you very much for giving up your valuable time to, to come and thank you very much for the other panellists for joining today and providing their knowledge and expertise. Thanks very much. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.